Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have another interview episode for you with Professor Amy Greenberg. Professor Greenberg is the George Winfrey Professor of American History at Penn State and the author of A Wicked War, Polk, Clay, Lincoln, and the 1846 U.S. Invasion of Mexico, as well as her more recent book, Lady First, The World of First Lady Sarah Polk. We focus in this conversation in setting the stage for the Mexican-American War and talking about some of the consequences. While we don't get into too much of the weeds of the battles and skirmishes, which I'm saying in air quotes here, which will make sense as you listen, this conversation is a super helpful tool to help you conceptualize and understand what was happening in Alta California, uh, the details of which I will cover in our regular narrative episodes. As always, I ask for your support. That can be either a financial contribution through Patreon or by giving us a rating and review. Both go a long way to helping this podcast be successful and sustainable. All right, let's get started. My first question is, uh, was, was war with Mexico inevitable? Was it something... Uh, that was going to happen regardless of what preceding events led to it? Is it something that, uh, you know, kind of the big, uh, those big wheels of history are, were moving towards? Uh, or do you see it as, a, you know, a series of events uh, that led to this outcome that could have gone different ways? You know, it's such a good question. Um, some wars, I think, when we think about them, we can say they were inevitable, but I... I do not see the war between the U.S. and Mexico in 1846 as in that category. So much uh, was the result of personalities that were involved, uh, bad diplomacy. Uh, there was a book written in the 1970s, I think, a really long book that argued that the United States could have gotten everything from Mexico that they got from war simply through diplomacy if they had had better diplomats. And when you actually look at the diplomats that the U.S. Um, engaged during this war, uh, they were so ridiculously incompetent and so little effort was made to um, respect Mexico uh, that, that I think this war situation happened um, that really wasn't, it, it didn't have to happen in the way it did, certainly. You know, and I, and I cover this in the podcast a lot when we talk about uh, Alta California. I mean, it's really just kind of the backwoods, like a frontier. Um, and then when you think about uh, the wars that were going on with the Comanches and different native people, like a, a lot of the stuff that became the United States was uh, terrain that cost uh, the Mexican government a lot to maintain. And it was stuff that they weren't really, I, you know, I don't want to say this because I'm sound like some, uh, you know, like a venture capitalist or something that's looking at a company, you know, they weren't using their resources or whatever. It was, uh, it, it was kind of, and there was a lot of people in, in uh, particularly in Alta California that uh, saw kind of the break from Mexico proper as inevitable in some ways. So, so what you're saying is that diplomacy could have secured the United States, that land that wasn't, you know, wasn't as important as central Mexico? I mean, you know, we're, we're dealing with hypotheticals right here. So we don't, right. we don't know exactly what would have happened um, had, for instance, uh, Mexico owned 
Sutter's Fort when gold was discovered. Like who knows exactly what, have, what would have happened. But if you, if you look at the negotiating strategies and the perennial financial um, difficulties that Mexico found itself in in the middle of the 19th century, it looks pretty clear that Mexico would have sold all of this land to the United States. I mean, you're absolutely right. Not only was Mexico not using um, the resources in their north uh, advantageously, they were doing absolutely nothing to protect the residents of um, their northern areas from attacks by Indians, uh, the, the mercantilist uh, economic basis that Mexico had meant that it was more expensive to actually get beans from Mexico uh, in, in um, California than it was to buy beans from the United States. So, and you know, as you've actually covered um, in your podcast, there wasn't a lot, there wasn't a lot tying the residents, the Californios to, to central Mexico. The identity that we think of as um, Mexican, this wasn't in place at the time. Mexico itself was a relatively recent invention and uh, the people of central Mexico, the people of the highlands, the people from Mexico City, um, they just had an entirely different mentality than people did uh, out out in the um, frontier regions and, and that as different as the residents of Santa Fe were from the residents of say Santa Barbara or the residents of Santa Fe were from the residents of um, Coahuila Tejas, all of these people shared a feeling of neglect from Mexico City. And all of them were um, interested in making lives that didn't necessarily hinge on whether or not they got to remain under a Mexican flag that they didn't feel a lot of allegiance to in the first place. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I it's interesting too, um, another topic that we've covered is all of these, uh, you know, fur trappers and different uh, kind of, you know, explorers just kind of wandering across <laughs> the West, you know, and uh, getting in conflicts with the governor of Alta California and just kind of, you know, uh, perusing this land that, uh, you know, seemingly was a, a sovereign state. And it's a, it just, it just feels, you know, sometimes I, I get this feeling when I, you know, cause I'm a K-12 teacher, uh, history teacher. And so I get this feeling when I look at maps, right? Uh, because we have maps in our textbooks um, and the maps show like these clear lines, right? Uh, this is, this is Mexico in 1821 after the, after the war. And, you know, it doesn't include all the sovereign uh, native uh, nations. It doesn't include the fact that these lines are, you know, I mean, these borders are just so, it, it feels arbitrary almost. Um, so can you speak a little bit to that, to just kind of this sense of like, there existed this thing, but it, it didn't really exist. It was kind of a, it was like an imperial, like imaginary thing as well. This is the big story of North American history. Um, and I'm not just talking in the United States, I'm talking Mexico and I'm talking Canada, is you have these European nations that are claiming sovereignty over land that they have no control over, right? So we've had such fantastic work has been done by, um, uh, you know, scholars looking at the Comanche and looking at the Arapaho and, you know, basically looking at any native group of people that you can think of who point out that, well, it's all good and fine to claim this as territory that's, say, 
France no longer owns and the United States owns now, but if the people of the United States or the people of France or the people of England, if they can't actually establish physical control over the land or the resources, in what way is that territory theirs? But who makes the maps? It's the European cartographers, right? So we all grow up with this um, kind of really weird and fake idea of um, what land belongs to what people. And I, you know what, um, I just want to talk about the K-12 situation just for a moment because Absolutely. Um, I went, I grew up in Southern California and, and I went through the school system. Um, I attended Catholic school right near the Mission Santa Barbara. Okay. And we went to the mission a lot. And I will tell you that I was, I was a history nerd kid and we, I never remember learning that there was a war between the United States and Mexico. I remember learning the mission period, um, the bear flag revolt, right? And then suddenly it was the United States. So I, I felt like the war, I never knew about that war. And I have a brother who teaches K-12 um, now, and he says most of the kids that um, he teaches, they don't know that there was a war between the U.S. and Mexico. They don't know that that territory where they live was ever part of Mexico. And that goes for kids who grew up in Mexico and are living in Southern California now. So this, um, I, don't, I don't know what to say about it from a K-12 perspective, but one of the things that I do as a historian is I like to talk in middle schools um, in central Pennsylvania about the U.S.-Mexico war, which is obviously much less relevant to our lives than it is to the people of California, but right. just let them know that there was a war that the United States participated in. The first war where we fought against a neighboring republic simply for greed, simply for greed, and that this war resulted in us taking land that was Mexican land and that that land, including California, including Texas, that that was once Mexican land just for them to wrap their heads around that. Um, it's such a tricky thing. And I, you know, I, I, I'm married to a psychologist, so I think about development a lot. And um, I, you know, I, I, when I was in fourth grade, you know, I went through the mission system project and we went to visit a mission as well. And we did that whole thing. And, you know, obviously for, a 10 year old developmentally describing what was happening to native people at the missions um, is, is not something they're ready for at the same time, you know, we're teaching this myth to kids. Um, and so I almost am in the camp of like, I don't even want to teach it to that. It shouldn't be that age. It shouldn't, it should be in high school where you learn, well, your, your state has a complicated past. You know, the Bear Flag Revolt was kind of like an insurrection in another, in another country um, that led to, and it's, it's memorialized on your flag. You know, and it's, so it, for me, it feels like the wrong age, and I don't feel like we should be teaching kids that. You know, it's like taking kids to, I don't know, like a POW camp in fourth grade, you know, it's like, why, why would you do that? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. But I will also say that um, I remember learning that the Chumash were extinct. And I was teaching Native American history here. And I thought back on that. And I thought, Did I really learned that. And I went back and looked at textbooks that were written about California history for little kids. Mm -hmm. um, and textbooks on Native American history that were written in the 70s. And they did say that Chumash were extinct. 
Well, I hate to break it to them. I've had a Shumash on my podcast, so I've, I've broken that. I've broken that story. So um, let's, uh, let, I want to talk, you kind of led into this a little bit, but I want to get at it. So sometimes, you know, book titles are always interesting, right? And I know that uh, publishers have a role in book titles as well. And so there's a word in your book title that kind of maybe gives your cards away a little bit. And I want you to talk about what you mean by that word, which is wicked. And I was actually thinking about that word recently because in a totally different context, uh, there's this uh, writer, uh, David Epstein, who writes about wicked versus kind learning environments and how wicked is kind of describing the complicated nature of it. But that's not what you mean here, right? <laughs> what, can you unpack that word? And was that your idea to use that word in your title? That's really funny. Um, yeah, so the title of my book is The Wicked War. And I will say at the outset that the press, Knopf Press, did not like having the word wicked in the title. And they they asked me if I would change it because they didn't think it would play well with certain segments of the reading public. But I fell back on the really wonderful reason for that being in the title, which is that Ulysses S. Grant is the person who described it as a wicked war. So a wicked war is actually a quote from the great Ulysses S. Grant like many other heroic generals in the Civil War, got their start in foreign combat in Mexico. So young Ulysses S. Grant, he's a lieutenant when he goes down to Mexico, and he is shocked by the war. And later on in his life, he writes his autobiography, which everybody out there should read because it's a remarkable um, work of history and work of memoir. And Grant talks about the U.S.-Mexican War, and he says um, that it was a wicked war, and that he can't think of a more wicked war that was ever fought between a stronger and a weaker country. And he also says, in the same quote, that if he could do it over again, um, he would have resigned. So he said he had not the moral courage to resign from fighting in the war. So anytime anybody you know, would say to me, how can you call this incredible victory that the United States had over Mexico a wicked war? I say, oh, it wasn't me. It was Grant. Grant said it. There you go. That's a, that's a helpful <laughs> thing to fall back on. It I, really yeah, is. I, you know, I, sometimes I, I think, you know, intellectuals uh, in our society avoid dipping too much into the kind of the, the, the moral uh, compass questions, but I think this one is clear. And um, can you can you kind of give a little bit of background uh, with uh, Polk and kind of the uh, the push uh, uh, towards this war and uh, the kind of the driving force to really kind of hammer this point home? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, you know, I think if you want to set the stage for how the United States got into a war that was really contrary to everything that we claim to believe in um, and avaricious. You have to go back to the idea of manifest destiny um, and the concept that a lot of people in the United States had that the United States was so special that God had obviously ordained it to spread across what appeared to be a mostly open continent. Now, of course, the continent was not open or vacant or virgin or any of those words you want to use to describe it that people did use to describe it. Um, it was occupied by um, 
native people. It was owned um, by Mexico, portions of it, portions of it, um, portions of it were controlled by Great Britain. Um, but in the eyes of people in the United States, that land was being underused. And so it was really in our hands, speaking as a United States citizen, it was in the hands of United States citizens to take it and to make use of that land. And this is the idea of Manifest Destiny. So James K. Polk, he was a pretty successful politician. Um, and when he became the first dark horse candidate for the presidency, and the reason that he became the first dark horse candidate for the presidency is that the two standard bearers for the political parties, who everybody knew were gonna end up being the candidates in the 1844 election, were Henry Clay, um, the kind of um, master of the Whig party, and Martin Van Buren, who had been president once and then had lost to Harrison. Um, these are the guys, everybody knows they're gonna be the candidates, right? But the deal is, is that after um, John Tyler, who is the sitting president in 1843, after he, negotiates a um, secret treaty with the Republic of Texas in order to annex Texas to the United States, Clay and Van Buren, either coincidentally or together, um, come out with statements saying that they do not believe that Texas should be annexed to the United States. Texas should remain an independent republic. They don't want to annex Texas. And their reasons are remarkably similar for why, okay, and, and remember, this is the standard bearer of one part, one party, the Democrats and his opposite. So the two main parties are basically coming out and saying the same thing, which is we should not annex Texas. Why not? Because Mexico never admitted that Texas was free. In the minds of Mexico, Texas is a breakaway republic. So if we annex it, we're gonna have a war with Mexico. Also, it's gonna exacerbate the sectional tensions between the North and the South. Let's just not do it. So they both say this, and the American people, some portion of them, the portion of the people who think that not only should we annex Texas, we should have California, um, we should take everything. People in this time period are talking about the United States expanding all the way through South America and completely taking over Canada, like the United States should take over the whole continent. So there's outrage that there is no option for people who believe in manifest destiny when the two parties are saying the same thing. This leads to a guy who has made Manifest Destiny his big talking point, somebody who totally believes in territorial expansion, to be able to win the Democratic nomination, and that's James K. Polk. And then he becomes president. And when he runs for president, he is very clear that he believes that the United States has not done growing, and it's going to grow more, and it's going to grow more under his presidency. So. He takes office with this mandate, a mandate to make the United States bigger. And making it bigger, everyone knows, requires gaining the big ports on the West Coast, including California and including taking Puget Sound from what is currently joint control with England. So let's get, let's now Washington State and let's get all California. That's the mandate. And so it's this position that leads Polk into a war 
um, that ultimately he doesn't think is going to be a big deal. So his efforts to avoid war with Mexico and to negotiate buying California um, are pretty half-hearted. He goes to Mexico and he says, uh, look, I'll give you $30 million to sell us California. Now, Mexico's still angry that we've annexed Texas. So they're, they're not interested in selling California. So they say, of course not. You're insulting us. You are acting like Texas is not even an issue and we, we, we still think Texas is part of, uh, part of our country. Um, so, you know, he offers some money, they don't take it. And so basically he starts a war with Mexico that he is so convinced is gonna end within a couple of months that he tells his brother, who's currently stationed in, in, in uh, Europe as a diplomat, he tells his brother, William, he says, look, don't even bother to come home. This war is gonna be over before you can get home. And the reason that he thinks the war is gonna be over so quick is that the American people in general, and Polk certainly himself, do not think that the Mexican people are capable of defending themselves or that they'll fight. And that's kind of basically just a racist view. So I, you know, when we think about this conflict, you know, and conflicts in general, um, you know, we, like when we think about World War II, we think about, you know, allies, Axis, and we don't think about all these, um, you know, kind of uh, parties that are in between, you know, um, there's this great book I just read called Bloodlands, um, and it was about uh, the years after World War II, uh, kind of in that in that in between period of all these kind of displaced groups and like how they got to where they are and how they where they moved after. And it's a a great book. But um, in between these two nations, you know, you have all these other sovereign nations, all these native groups that are kind of sitting there in the midst of this conflict between these two powers. And so I guess my question is, uh, what, what role did Native people play and how did maybe they view this conflict between uh, these two aggressors? Uh, okay, well, first of all, I wanna take off my hat to Brian DeLay, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, who has done such astounding work on this topic and who really we've had on the podcast by the way yeah okay well well done i mean um brian's work the amount of research that's gone into that so brian's you know central observation realization is that um you've got independent indian nations um the comanche and the apache uh that are kind of a third party in the U.S.-Mexico war. So we think of the U.S.-Mexico war as between two countries, but you've actually got independent Indian nations that are playing a huge role. And the way in which they impact the war is so multifaceted, I cannot do justice to the nuances of this argument, but the key things to know are that um, that kind of uh, central Mexican um, disregard for the northern provinces. A, a major place where this played out is that people who are living in um, Texas and New Mexico and California, in, in a lot of cases, they are being very abused by these Indian nations, the members of the Indian nations, um, in the form of having their um, livestock and they're raided, their crops destroyed, their houses burned down, their family members abducted. Uh, there is a state 
um, in portions of Texas and New Mexico in particular, where it's just warfare. It's warfare that the Mexican residents of those areas believe that the central government should be protecting them from. So how does this affect the war? Well, it affects the war in two very major ways. First of all, the residents of those areas do not have the will to turn out and fight against American invaders when Americans show up. Um, they can't give up the people in order to um, staff the army that Mexico needs um, in order to protect those regions because they're already completely devastated by, at this point, over a decade of warfare with um, independent Indian nations. And the second place where it plays out is that the Mexican residents of those areas, they don't care who, what European flag flies over them because the one thing that they are looking for is protection from the Barbaros Indios, right? And so people say, well, how amazing that when um, Carney shows up in Santa Fe, this incredibly important city, the most important city in the northern part of Mexico, he shows up and he takes the city without a shot. Well, the reason he takes the city without a shot is because he goes into the main square in Santa Fe and he says, um, we'll protect you from the Indians. That's all these people want is to be protected from the Indians. So of course they're like, that's great. You're going to protect us from the Indians. That's fantastic. Well, those are two places where this absolutely impacts the war. You know, another really great way of thinking about this is that, that again, this is totally Brian's work, is that the one of the reasons why United States politicians believe that Mexicans are weak and they can't fight. The reason why Polk thinks the war is going to be done in a couple of months is because Mexicans have proven incapable of dealing with quote unquote their Indians, whereas the United States has had no problem dispossessing their own Indians. The Trail of Tears, which happens in the 18, late 1830s, mid 1830s, so not very long before the US-Mexico War, uh, effectively dispossesses the very vast majority of all of the Indian people who lived east of the Mississippi. So the U.S. was able to do that. So they look at Mexico and they say, the fact that these people can't do the same thing with their own Indians proves that we're not going to have any problem fighting them. Well, what they're not taking into account is we've got vastly different people that we're dealing with here. All Indians are not the same. And Mexico's quote unquote Indians are a bit of a more intractable problem, which the representatives from the state of Texas, once they come to the Senate, Sam Houston points out to everybody, hey, you know what? You want to talk about Indians? The Comanche are not the same as the Cherokee. And it is a really hilarious kind of uh, moment at the end of the US-Mexico War when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo um, is negotiated between Mexico and the United States and the United States commits itself to um, keeping Indian incursions from Mexico as part of this um, peace treaty and the representatives from Texas and representatives from the West, they say, yeah, you know what, we cannot commit to preventing Indian incursions into Mexico. We can't prevent, we cannot, we cannot maintain a border because the roving Comanche people, um, we can't stop them. So this is, uh, you know, something that they point out. So the people who actually now are like, it's not the same Indians, but this 
idea of what an Indian is greatly affects how the US thinks Mexico is going to be able to fight. And on the, on the flip side, the Mexican government is convinced that the Comanche are being funded by the US government. They think there's no way the Comanche would be um, as intractable as they were if they weren't actually being supported by the US government. So it leads to a lot of misconceptions on both sides. Yeah, I just, I feel like there's a huge gap, uh, at least in the curriculum that I use in thinking about uh, natives in, in context of US history. I mean, I feel like it's just a, you know, it's a history of genocide without the, the power preceding that. Um, like, a, a, you know, kind of setting in context who these people were and what they did. And I, I just, you know, I think that needs to be remedied. I mean, it just, it's, it's a, such a huge gap in, in how we tell the story, right? Um, so I um, want to transition to talking about California. Um, and, you know, there's this concept that we talk about of the frontier. Um, and the, if I, if we think about the war in, in terms of, uh, theaters, you know, you, the, the kind of more Western theater is the war is a little lighter. Um, it's, uh, the fighting is less intense. Um, I, there's, there's a few different things I think obviously, you know, play into this, right? You know, uh, uh, the concentration of population and all those different factors. But what do you attribute uh, the kind of lack of resistance to in, in California? Right. So um, I would say it's primarily the fact that power resides in a very small number of landowners. The Californios, who pretty much more than anybody else, um, don't feel a huge allegiance to central Mexico. Uh, they're willing to play both sides. They just want to kind of watch how things shake out. And um, so, you know, who really is there to fight? Who is there to fight and why is there to fight? I'm thinking in particular of the De La Guerra family um, in Santa Barbara. Um, so Jose De La Guerra, he's the richest guy in Santa Barbara County, one of the richest people um, in California. And when um, the U.S. Army asks for support and asks for troops, he's like, yeah, sure, I'll help you out. But, you know, it doesn't quite give as much as he might give. Um, he, uh, but he, he definitely is amenable. He, he does nothing to alienate the people who he may, in fact, be working with because he is the power structure of the area. And you kind of see this going on um, all over California. I will say, though, one thing that I think is kind of funny is that maybe the only victory that Mexico has, and we're talking, we're speaking Mexico here broadly, including um, California, the only real victory that Mexico has against the United States is the Battle of San Pasquale, um, which, you know, is a battle in California. And this is, this is like the one big victory that Mexico can claim, which is basically when Andres Pico um, goes he knows that 
General Kearney is camped um, near Pan San Pascale, right? North of San Diego. It's is December of 1846. And he decides to basically take the war um, to this guy. So he um, heads over there to take on the Army of the West and basically wins. Um, by winning, I mean that basically uh, Pico and his guys are able to um, just storm the Americans uh, and mow a whole bunch of them down. So, uh, you know, the U.S. loses somewhere in the 20s of soldiers in this battle and um no pico doesn't lose anybody and so this is like a clear obvious victory by the californios and is celebrated throughout california as this victory and actually has led even now to pico being um you know kind of elevated as a hero uh in the u.s mexico war so what what i think is funny about this is that nobody knows about this battle mm -hmm. and when you read standard histories of the u.s mexico war they always describe this battle as a skirmish yes that term it's pejorative <laughs> isn't it it's so pejorative it's, it's, it's so funny right so and i don't i don't understand this i'm not a military historian um as is probably evident from my description of that battle but um it so it's so if you read a standard account of the U.S.-Mexico War, um, like So Far From God um, by John Eisenhower, it will just mention this battle briefly and be like, oh yes, um, Carney suffered a, you know, a setback in the skirmish. Instead of saying, here's a battle where Mexicans actually won. And I think the reason why is because, um, I don't know. Wait, maybe we have an investment in saying the U.S. won every single battle in this war because literally that's it. Yeah, that's it. U.S. won everything else primarily because we had so much better um, weaponry than Mexico. Mm -hmm. did. Um, so the idea that there's no anyhow, I just wanted to, I wanted to give a shout out. Yeah, and I you know I just shout covered out for Andres Pico exactly, and I covered the siege of siege of Los Angeles recently, and you know it's a uh, the the term obviously sounds makes it sound bigger than it was, um, but you know I think it's important for Californians to remember that Los Angeles is a Mexican city uh, that has now been ruled by its conquerors for the last hundred and sixty years, um, and you know one of maybe the early moments of uh, you know triumph is when the citizens of Los Angeles under martial law said we're not going to have this anymore and kicked out the military i think it's Absolutely. a cool story i think it's a cool story that you know should be you know should be written in kind of like the lore of los angeles uh that spanish-speaking mexicans kicked out u.s invaders uh after they arrived Okay, yeah, your story is actually much cooler than mine is. No, that's absolutely true. No, no, well, I mean, they're, they're all great stories. I just think they're, they're not told because, you know, it's, we, we, we tend to focus on certain theaters of war, I think, and, you know, if it, the number of troops involved dictates its importance, and that's, that's absurd. But um, you, you brought up historiography, and it's, you know, historiography is one of those uh, unsexy words for non-historians. Like, they just think, oh, God. You know, I was just, I was, um, reading uh, uh, some book reviews of a book that I was trying to pick up. Um, it was about uh, 
the Gothic Wars in Rome. And one of the Amazon reviews that I read said something like, um, oh God, it's just a bunch of historiography and then barely any, uh, you know, barely any coverage of like the main events. And I was like, great, bye. You know, and so for me, it's like, you know, I kind of want to hear, you know, how interpretations have changed. And um, so can you do a brief sketch of kind of how interpretations of the Mexican-American War have evolved through time? Oh, I'd love, I'd love to. Um, that, that is a totally hilarious story. Okay, not even I would buy a book that said that it was mostly about historiography and then okay. some of the So you are, you, hats off to you, Jordan, for being Thank a you. true- Thank you, Nerd Award. True history lover. So um, the historiography of the U.S.-Mexico War, I'm gonna take you way back. I'm gonna take you back to the actual war itself. And so like right after the war, you saw mainly histories of it being written um, on the Mexican side that basically said, yeah, this was a total disaster and um, the U.S. was just greedy and we didn't have any commanders worth a damn and um, kind of placing it in a kind of larger sort of sad um, context of defeat. And there were some early histories on the northern side of the border that were written from abolitionists who were like, this war was fought by the slave power in order to expand um, territory for slavery. And this position really becomes sort of set in stone um, after the rise of the Republican Party and the um, Civil War. So the Civil War, um, so quickly after the US-Mexico War, the Republican Party really takes control after that. And the Republican Party really um, emerged from, it was like built out of the ashes of the Whig Party, Henry Clay's party. And the Whigs always opposed the war. So this, this opposition of the war on moral grounds, you see that um, kind of take center stage um, after the Civil War, but also people don't really talk about the US-Mexico War too much. There's not much historiography to speak of in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, because everybody's so busy talking about Civil War, which is obviously a much sexier, more exciting, and um, more immediate war. The number of people who are killed and injured in the um, Civil War, you know, vastly on numbers, the number of people who are injured and killed in the Mexican-American War, although that was still a substantial number. So people don't talk about the war that much. And then at the beginning of the, um, 20th century, you have the publication by Justin Smith of his history of uh, the war with Mexico. And this book ends up winning a Pulitzer Prize. It is a phenomenal work of original research um, into the causes of the conflict and how the conflict happened, the battles, etc. And Justin Smith, he his thesis of his book is that Mexico got what it had coming to it. Um, it is a pretty harsh assessment of Mexico's role in the conflict that ultimately blames the war on Mexico. So the argument is kind of Mexico forced us to do it. Um, and upholds U.S. victory, I don't want to say in terms of manifest destiny, but definitely there's the idea there that the right side won um, and justice prevailed. So it's, um, on one hand, 
an impressive work of history in terms of the research. On the other hand, really pretty offensive and has since been um, justly critiqued for uh, being wrong-handed, racist, and basically unfair to Mexico. So, you know, but, but Justin Smith's vision of the war really held uh, pretty firm in the United States for decades. And uh, with the rise of military history um, in the um, 1920s and 1930s and 1940s, by the 1950s, you begin to see a lot of books on the US-Mexico War written from a military perspective that are celebrating the war in terms of all of the things that the US managed to do from a military standpoint. And there's nothing wrong with this perspective. There, if you're interested in military stuff, the US-Mexico War is really important. Um, for instance, when General Winfield Scott attacks the walled city of Veracruz, this is the first amphibious um, assault in military history. So that's kind of a big deal. There's a lot of stuff that's innovative in the war. And again, as I already mentioned, with the exception of San Pascale, um, the US wins all these battles. So military historians write about it a lot. Um, I don't want to say they necessarily all write about it in a celebratory fashion, but in terms of the military history, they show how great this war was from a military perspective. Yeah. Now the moment, I think, when things really begin to change with the historiography of the U.S.-Mexico War is during the Vietnam War. It is during the Vietnam War that a set of scholars returned to the U.S.-Mexico War, not writing about it from a military perspective, but writing about it as a war that reminds them of the war with Vietnam. And the ways that it seems so resonant with the Vietnam War are that it's a war that is not being fought for principle. So it's an aggressive war where a lot of people are dying, a lot of Mexican civilians are dying, where there is clear, vocal anti-war sentiment coming from within the United States. Now, you could actually say this is true of every US war, that there's a lot of anti-war sentiment during the Civil War, um, during the War of 1812, during the Revolutionary War, but they're focusing on the US-Mexico War because this is a war that the US is winning, um, but that at the time that it's happening, there are very vocal people saying this is immoral. And those are the abolitionists, and there are people um, from New England uh, who just see this as, um, as unjust, as immoral, as about expanding slavery. Um, and so it's a much more nuanced, nuanced vision of the U.S.-Mexico War, and it's a vision of the war that is focused as much on what's wrong with the war as what is right with the war. Um, people also talk about the role of the U.S.-Mexico War in precipitating the Civil War. And this becomes kind of, I think, the major theme of U.S.-Mexico War historiography from the 70s until the end of um, the 20th century, is that the war is important because it leads directly to the Civil War. And James McPherson is largely responsible for um, hammering this into everybody's mind with his kind of magisterial 
the battle cry of freedom, which is history, his big Pulitzer Prize winning history of the Civil War, he says, he starts out with the US-Mexico War and he says, okay, so here we have this war. It brings all this new territory uh, into US hands and our political system's totally unable to figure out how to deal with slavery in that area. And that's what leads to um, the Civil War. And that's the way I was certainly taught about it. Um, I was certainly taught from that perspective that, you know, um, and that everything was driving to this point and the Mexican American war was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back is, is, is what I have, at least when I was in school, that's what I was taught. Well, I'll be honest. I still, I still talk about it that way when I teach the survey. Um, there's a great quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, which is just pretty much priceless, where he says during the US-Mexico War, he says, yeah, the US will defeat Mexico, but it will be like the man who drinks poison. Um, I'm totally, I'm sure completely bungling this quote, but Mexico will poison us is the takeaway from it, yeah. right? So I have a couple, a couple thoughts. Um, one, and this is kind of just, you know, something that I see, you know, as someone working kind of in, popular, you know, trying to bring popular history to people through this podcast format is sometimes I feel like when I talk to people about history books, they just buy a book that looks good. And, you know, and it's, and these books are taking place in these conversations that have been going on, like your conversation for hundreds of years. Um, and to just buy an arbitrary book is almost like, um, just looking through a text stream with people and picking one line to interpret the whole conversation. And it, it, I just wish there was some resource out there where people could, you know, you could type in Mexican American war and you'd get a general outline of the, how, how the conversation has evolved anyway, but that's a whole, whole different thing. Um, the you got to do that. You should put it together. You know this stuff. That, I mean, it would be it would be a great resource, right? It'd be you know, it you totally would. Type in your subject, and you know, you could see the the history of the conversation. The other thing, um, another great book that I've uh, read recently is called "War: How Conflict Has Shaped Us" by the Canadian historian uh, Margaret Macmillan. Um, oh, I heard about and, that. And it's it's you know, I feel like there's two camps, right? I feel like there's this camp of people that just are obsessed with war history. I mean, you turn on the History Channel and everything's about Hitler. And then uh, there's this other camp that just wants to reject talking about war entirely and just wants to focus on cultural history and whatever. And, I, I, and, and Macmillan, she, you know, she basically says, well, you can't help avoid talking about war because it's made us who we are. Um, and so even though there's this kind of distaste for it, because it's, it's kind of seen as kind of, I don't know, like lowbrow or something like the guys that, you know, have all the books on the third Reich in their garage and you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's just kind I do. of, no, I do. And so, I do. so, um, it's just, it's just hard because we need to talk about it, but it's also, I feel like the conversation has been taken over by this kind of, you know, not amateur, but you know what I'm describing. No, I absolutely do. But I mean, here's the problem. Like any, any historical topic that is too popular is going to lose prestige among yeah. real quote unquote real historians. So the Western Historical Association, they deal with this. Oh yeah. You've you got it with your podcast both ways. You got the war here and you've got the Western history, right? Yeah. Western history. If people love it, it must not be serious, right? Yeah. Civil war, the same way. People that work on, I'm part of a Richard, this Richard Civil War Center 
here at Penn State. And there's a lot of, you know, historians who don't work on the 19th century America who are like, oh, the Civil War. Yeah, I know. That's like my uncle. He loves the Civil War. Yeah, right? go to all the battlefields and all, all the battlefields. <laughs> well, so I want to I want to uh, transport us to the present uh, um, to kind of close with these last two questions. Um, so obviously, you know, it's um, when you I'll, I'll 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 say this by talking about a bad roommate. Um, so sometimes when you have a conflict with somebody like a bad roommate, you move out, you know, you find a new roommate. And I had a few in college and graduate school. Um, just didn't work, couldn't live next to each other. They'd, he'd play his rap music late into the night and I had Latin in the morning. It just didn't work, right? Um, but the United States and Mexico have had to continue to live with each other uh, because they can't go on Craigslist and find a new place to live. Um, and so uh, how, how do you see the legacy of this war kind of shaping the relationship between our countries? And um, and do you see it as uh, kind of the central event that has kind of shaped us or are there other events that have uh, shaped our relationship? Well, that is a wonderful question. I teach uh, a kind of thesis writing course here at Penn State, um, occasionally on the US-Mexico War and I have students write research papers on it. And in one year, a lot of students tackled, this is just maybe two years ago, a bunch of students tackled this topic. They really looked at relations between the US and Mexico and what role the US-Mexico War has played in it. And I, I think it's really important to emphasize that south of the border, the US-Mexico War is a very live thing in people's lives. They know about it. They are aware of it they think about it, it is important. It's not important north of the border. Like this is the point, right? People don't know about it. They don't think about it. It's considered one of the forgotten wars along with Korea. Um, we don't have to think about it. People in Mexico think about it. And so it's easy from the perspective of the occupiers, which is what essentially the people of the United States are in California um, and other parts of the country. It's easy to say, oh, that's, that's the past and it doesn't matter. But all the time, the United States does stuff that just disrespects the memory of the fact that this used to be Mexican territory. Um, is it the most important thing that's happened between the two countries? Maybe not, maybe like we could be talking about the Bracero program or we could be talking about um, 20th century events between the United States. We could be talking about the Mexican revolution, um, but it is a important thing. It isn't something important that mattered. And, I, and again, I think, you know, this is something that if people were more aware that, that, that it's not that Mexicans are invading California, right? It's not that crossing the border in this particular border is this, remarkable thing that's happening. This used to be Mexican land. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. In terms of the future of US-Mexico relations, I'm involved in a project right now, uh, which is um, acknowledging the history of diplomacy between the US and Mexico, and, and it's a, a cross-cultural, um, 
kind of series of conferences and writing a volume that's looking at the history of diplomacy from a historical perspective. Um, and and I and I and what it's made me think about is that there's there's actually a lot that these two countries share, not just starting out both as republics, but sets of values. Um, and actually, there's been a lot of coordination between the two countries, which again, we don't we don't think about that much. I think the takeaway from this is that the United States doesn't think about Mexico as much as it should. Yeah. And Mexico thinks about the United States plenty. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I just looked at the numbers this morning. Uh, nearly a third of Californians say they speak Spanish at some point during their day at home, you oh, know. Great, I had no idea. So it's, wow. it, for me, it's like, I mean, we, we can talk about, you know, I'm not some kind of anarcho syndicalist or anything, but like borders and boundaries, you know, like they're, they're, they're real, but they're also not, you know, I mean, you, we live in a, well, I live in a state where things were named by a Spanish government, um, were, you know, <laughs> controlled by a Mexican government. And now a, a third of the people here speak Spanish. It's just, it's, everything is so much more complex and complicated and these lines are just created um, to give us a sense of order, but the order's not there, you know? And, and the, you know, I, I teach in a rural school in the Central Valley of California and I have kids coming back and forth, back and forth uh, for the holidays, you know? Um, I have to make so many independent study packets every December because there's that six week trip to Mexico that comes every Absolutely. year. Absolutely, I was so astounded when I moved to Pennsylvania and the Christmas break here is a week long. It's a week long and I, and I, you know, I think of Christmas break as like, it's this extended period of time when everybody goes home, right? Or they go visit their grandparents, everybody leaves and it's gotta be at least a month long because people are actually like, they're going to see their grandparents and then they come back. It's not like that here at all. Okay. I promise these are the last two questions. I And this one is totally off topic, but um, w when you and I talked about having a conversation, I was just randomly opening my New York Times and I see a book <laughs> review that you, write, that you wrote. Um, and it, it kind of relates to our topic and I'm gonna make it relate, believe it or not. Um, so the book is, uh, Gordon Brown is the writer of the book that you reviewed. And it's about uh, this guy, Henry Adams. And I was thinking about Henry Adams, believe it or not, when I was on Twitter the other night, um, as you do, you think about Henry Adams on Twitter. And I was kind of, you know, I was reading this long tweet conversation about, you know, intellectual whatever on Twitter, which, you know, is its own kind of uh, universe. Uh, but just kind of thinking about this kind of lack of public intellectuals, you know, and how the democratization of opinions you know, which ever, you know, America's had a boisterous, you know, political universe since the beginning. Absolutely. But there were also these forces that exist in society, whether they're right or wrong, you know, that, that kind of had a different, I, I don't want to say prestige because that's not what I'm trying to get at, but there was this kind of aristocratic intellectual culture. And it, do you, so I guess two part question, do you think that's disappearing? Um, as everything's being democratized, social media, podcasts, the whole world. Um, and two, is, is that a problem? Wow. 
Well, I will say that um, I was astounded, and I think the New York Times book review was astounded at the amount of attention that a review of a biography of Henry Adams got. I think it's really hit a nerve, and I saw that that book has been had high profile reviews everywhere. So it really made me wonder if maybe there is a yearning um, for a kind of public intellectual like Henry Adams now. I, I was I was astounded. I don't think Henry Adams is really that important, but he had a, a level of um, respect and he did a lot of stuff. Okay, so to answer the first part of your question, yeah, no, where are the public intellectuals? They're gone. Yeah. I just finished teaching, finished today actually, teaching a class on um, political scandal here at Penn State. And just looking at the history of political scandal, the way in which social media has, um, since the Clinton Lewinsky scandal, completely changed the way uh, the what the public is and whose voices matter and the relative prestige of even um, the old legacy um, outlets like the New York Times uh, is, is really amazing. Does it matter? Well, yeah, I think it probably does. Because it, you know, I mean, what Henry Adams was clearly wrong about so much. So much, uh, so, so much. much. But it's it it kind of gets to this idea of like, I don't know, authority or like. Uh, like a common, I don't want to say canon either. I, it, it just, it, it, it feels, it feels worrisome that, uh, you know, how many retweets something gets establish its importance. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm, I'm, you know, in my thirties, but I've already moved into my cranky phase. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> the, the cranky 30 year old. I don't think, I think that's your own category. Probably. Thank I don't you. know. How Thank many you. I appreciate there are. that. I mean, the one thing that people do say about Twitter is that it gives voices to people who didn't have voices before, yeah. right? It, it, yeah. People who, who weren't part of that conversation, they now have that. But yeah, the public intellectuals, I don't know. You're going to have a hard time convincing me that the loss of Henry Adams has been bad for society. Yeah. Uh, he, he really, he was a piece of work. But a lot of people, a lot of readers in the New York Times disagree with me on that point. There's yeah, a lot of and there's people, there's people doing there. that kind of work. I mean, Jill Lepore's big book, uh, yes. Truth. You know, so there's people doing this work, and I, and I just, I just hope they have the same prestige as someone like Henry Adams had in his day. As this, you know, that's what I want. But again, history nerd talking. So let's close by. Um, uh, I always like to close with book recommendations. So these can either be about Mexican American War that you really enjoyed and informed your uh, writing, or it can be about, uh, for history nerds just generally, uh, history books or historians that are writing right now that you'd recommend people uh, to read? Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, really, I think the most um, kind of important book on the U.S.-Mexico War that's come out is, is by a guy named Peter Guardino, who wrote a history of the U.S.-Mexico War that he managed to write it successfully, both from the Mexican perspective and the U.S. perspective. So I would recommend people check out Peter Guardino's work, um, for sure. Uh, one book that um, I read recently and I 
really enjoyed. Uh, well, there's a new book coming out by Alan Taylor about, um, it's called... Um, American Republics, I think. American Republics. I think it, that's what it is. I don't know. It is called American Republics. It is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Maybe Alan Taylor is part of that public intellectual tradition. I don't know, but the guy, he keeps writing these synthetic works that manage to put a really coherent spin on a really long and extended period of time. So I would highly recommend American Republics. And he's such a great person to talk to. I was uh, very intimidated when I first talked to him because, you know, when you've read so much of, so, of someone's work and then you, and then they're a human being, it's, it can be a little startling at first. Um, but yeah, his, I, I, I appreciate, you know, his work is that kind of thing that I'm yearning for, which is, are these kind of big histories, um, but that are not triumphalist. They're not, no. uh, they don't overlook things. Um, and I, 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 you know, those are the kinds of works that I'm excited to read. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, I think your work is should be included in one of those. I really enjoyed your book. Um, are there any, uh, what are the writing projects of late? Um, do you have something coming out in the near future? Are you working on anything? I don't really have anything coming out right now. I'm currently the president of the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic, and that is taking up um, every bit of my time that isn't devoted to being a parent during COVID. Uh, and trying to teach classes to students who will not turn their cameras on. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So uh, that's that's kind of um, I'm dealing I'm dealing with um, that right now. I am I am working on this project um, about diplomacy between the U.S. and Mexico. So that's about it right now. Yeah. Well, you know, there's seasons of life, right? You know, some, some <laughs> seasons of life. You know, there's uh, there's the bureaucratic seasons of life, and then there's the research seasons of life. But I appreciate you talking with me today, and uh, I've learned a lot, and I, you know, I'm so happy that I was able to bring you on. Well, it has been such a pleasure, Jordan, and you have given me some reading suggestions, which I am going to put on my Christmas list and hopefully uh, be able to read soon. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. And please go buy uh, Professor Greenberg's book, A Wicked War. Uh, there's a lot more to unpack, a lot more history there to learn about. I know you'll enjoy it, and until next time. Mm -hmm.